I don't know if you <clears throat> caught it, Greg, but in your announcements, when you were announcing the catechism class, at one point you said cataclysm <laughs> class. Oh, man. That's one of my favorite things when people say the wrong word. I do that a lot. I've done that a lot. Very embarrassing at times. But uh, that'd be a really funny Sunday school class, wouldn't it? A cataclysm class? Join us as we review history's most devastating earthquakes, (laughs) tsunamis, and hurricanes. (laughs) I was scheduled to preach from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9 this morning. I was sick the entire week, which left me without enough time to prepare a sermon from scratch. I think I was sick because, as you know, my wife was out of town last weekend, and that was just, that was more than I could bear. And so I was, I was, I was sick. I think I started getting sick the night she got home, and uh, it just got worse all week. So I went digging through uh, my sermon archives and found a couple of seven-year-old sermons that I gave as an introduction to the book of Genesis years ago, and I remember that many people found them helpful as they gave an overview of the Old and the New Testaments of the Bible. And so this morning, I'm going to ambitiously combine those two sermons into one and give you an overview of the entire Bible. So in a sense, our sermon text today begins with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and ends with Revelation chapter 22, verse 21. I agreed with Greg that that'd be too long to read. When you are reading a text in the Bible, when you're reading a verse or you're reading a set of verses, which we all do privately and with our families and together as a church every Sunday, it is crucial. You've heard me say this before, that you have to know the biblical context. When you're reading a verse or verses, you have to know the biblical context. Context. That is to say that you have to know how a small part fits into a bigger part. Have you ever joined a conversation already in progress and been lost? Or have you ever turned on a movie already in progress and found yourself lost? The reason you're lost is because you don't know the context. Well, the same is true for your Bible. When you read a verse, that verse is part of a chapter and you need to know the message of that chapter. And that chapter is part of a book and you need to know the message of the book. And that book is part of a testament and that testament is part of a Bible. And so you need to know how what you are reading relates to the whole of what God has said. Therefore, It is important for every Christian to have beneath all of their study an understanding of God's message through the entire Bible. So hopefully this morning will help with that. And remember, as we move forward, that this is God's word we're talking about. And in God's word alone, we learn who we are. More importantly, we learn who God is. And preaching from this Bible, if it is inspired by God, will lead to God's glory and your good and my good 
So before I preach this morning, we should pray together. Please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, as we listen to this sermon, fill our minds with truth, fill our hearts with desire, and move our wills to trust, honor, and obey you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to the table of contents. If you are using one of our church Bibles, which you're free to take with you, if you don't own a Bible, you'll find the table of contents on page two. That page is not marked, but it is actually the second page in that church Bible. The Bible, you've probably heard this before, it tells a story. In fact, the Bible is the greatest story ever told, and it is a true story with great power. Martin Luther said this, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold on me. So let's dive into this greatest story ever told. We'll start with an overview of the Old Testament. Unfortunately, many Christians like Martian of the second century despise the Old Testament. Many Christians don't like the Old Testament. They don't read it, except maybe the Psalms. They don't think it is useful. It's too long, some Christians say. It's cryptic. I don't understand it. It is depressing. God is too angry in the Old Testament. He's angry in the Old Testament, but he's nice in the New Testament. I like the nice New Testament God, people have said. It's only good, the Old Testament, for finding stories of courage and devotion to pass on to little kids through talking vegetables. But... Reality is, is that the Old Testament is part of God's revelation, just like the New Testament. The Old Testament is part of God's revelation. So through the Old Testament, God is revealing himself. We come to know God through the Old Testament. It is the creator displaying his glory to his creation. And as well, the Old Testament provides the context for understanding the person and work of Jesus in the New Testament. So if you don't understand the themes and the story of the Old Testament, good luck understanding Jesus. So look at the table of contents. There are 39 books in the Old Testament. First, you have five books of the law or the Torah. This is Genesis through Deuteronomy. Next are 12 books of history, that is Joshua all the way through Esther, and then five books of poetry, Job through Song of Solomon, and then finally there are 17 books of the prophets. There are five major, which just means bigger books, that's Isaiah through Daniel, and then the final 12 minor prophets or smaller books, Hosea through the end of the Old Testament, Malachi. Now... When it comes to what the Old Testament, what all those books is actually about, I'm going to use three headings this morning. History, holiness, and hope. The Old Testament of your Bible is about history, holiness, and hope. So let me begin by foolishly attempting to briefly summarize the history of the entire Old Testament. The Old Testament begins with, you know, with creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Something 
was created from nothing. The sun, stars, land, sea, and then life. Culminating with man created in God's image to live in the perfect garden of Eden. That's how the story begins. Sadly, the story of creation is quickly followed by the story of the fall. Adam and Eve, the first humans, disobeyed God. And when they disobeyed God, the whole creation fell into ruin. It was a cataclysmic event. Sin and death and decay entered the world and its effects were felt everywhere. Adam and Eve were cursed. They were kicked out of the garden. Cain, their son, killed Abel, their other son. And then as we read, mankind basically continued to degenerate. Mankind just continues to morally spiral down for generations until God finally destroyed the entire world by flood, saving Noah and his family. And Noah and his family were no better. And so generations continued to spiral away from God until mankind then collectively rebelled against God at the Tower of Babel. God came and judged their rebellion by confusing their language and then dispersing them all over the face of the earth. Many years later, God called Abraham. And God made a promise to him, a great promise, that all nations on earth would somehow be blessed through this man. God was going to give him a new home. God was going to give him many descendants. And the whole earth would be blessed through his family. So Abraham's family grew as God gave him many descendants, including a grandson named Jacob, who would later be called Israel. And for a relatively brief time, God's people enjoyed prosperity until, you know the story, they were oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptians. But there in Egypt, they continued to grow, becoming a large people group of over two million. In the book of Exodus, we read about the exodus of God's people from Egypt as God rescued them from Pharaoh through Moses. And then under Moses, God gave Israel his law. He established them as a nation. And ultimately, under Joshua, he led them to the promised land, thus fulfilling much of what God had promised to Abraham. And God's people were put in the promised land to display God's character to the nations around them. But instead, they displayed their rebellion. And they spiraled down again, which continued all the way through the rule of their dark heroes called the judges. Centuries later, God was their king and the only king they needed. But they wanted to be like every other nation around them. They wanted a human king. So they complained to God. They complained until God gave them a king. He gave them Saul and then David and then Solomon. And under those three kings was the united kingdom of Israel. After Solomon died, his son Rehoboam took over and the united kingdom became a divided kingdom. And the north was called Israel and the south was called Judah. 
Idolatry grew in Israel, the northern kingdom, until it was ultimately destroyed by the Assyrians. Sin reigned in Judah as well, until it was ultimately destroyed by the Babylonians. Survivors were carried off to exile into Babylon. And then 70 years later, under Persian rule, a remnant of Israel returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and to rebuild the temple. But Israel never regained the strength and glory they had under the kingdoms of David and Solomon. They were a much smaller people. They were a desperate people. And it was among them, 450 years before the birth of Christ, that Malachi prophesied. And he wrote the last book of the Old Testament. Done. Okay. That's a very condensed summary of the history of the Old Testament. So next, let's look at holiness. Let's look at holiness in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is about holiness. Holiness means set apart. Holiness means different. Holiness means cut off. Holiness means without sin. And it is made very clear in a number of ways in the Old Testament that God is holy. God is unlike any other. God is without sin. God is holy and man is not holy. As I mentioned before, a lot of people resist the Old Testament because God seems angry all the time. And it's sort of true. But why is God angry? As you read the Old Testament, why is God angry? God is angry because God is holy. God is angry because God is holy and sin is the enemy of holiness. God is angry because he is not indifferent to sin and the suffering and pain that it causes. And yet, remember the history that we just looked at. God does not make an end of his people. He does not just condemn and punish them for being unholy. That would be just. But he keeps loving them. He keeps rescuing them. The Old Testament teaches that every man and every woman is unholy. Every man is a sinner. And that we are incapable of taking care of this sin on our own. Our sin requires some sort of reparation. If unholy people are going to be in a relationship with a holy God. But how? How is that possible? That brings us to two very important themes that fall under the theme of holiness. Atonement and sacrifice. First, atonement. If you look at the word atonement, at one month. An atonement is an offering that enables two parties, two enemies that are at war with one another to be reconciled. So in the Old Testament, God's people learned that that is what they needed. They needed atonement. They were unholy. God was holy. They were disobedient and rebellious to God. They were alienated from God. They were not reconciled to God. They needed to be brought at one with God. They needed at one atonement. They needed an offering that would enable them to be reconciled to God. 
And then you'll remember in the Old Testament, they learned that the offering for atonement was to be a sacrifice. A lot of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Animal sacrifices. And so God communicated to his people exactly, you remember, through the law. He communicated to his people exactly how they ought to sacrifice and when they ought to sacrifice and what they ought to sacrifice and why they ought to sacrifice and how, if they did all those sacrifices correctly, it would turn the wrath of God aside. God was teaching them that sinners could restore They could seek to restore the relationship with God at one moment through sacrifice. So what do we read that they did in the Old Testament? In Exodus 12, 3, Leviticus 17, 11, the life of an unblemished animal symbolized by its blood would be given in exchange for the life of an unholy worshiper of God. In fact, during those sacrifices, the guilty person was required to place their hand on the head of the animal being sacrificed to symbolize the transferring of guilt. But these sacrifices were not a solution. These sacrifices were not enough. They only delayed God's wrath, but they did not satisfy God's holy wrath against sin. Of course they didn't. How could an animal sacrifice satisfy God's justice and anger toward the sin of all mankind? Hebrews 10 reflects back on the insufficiency of the animal sacrifices. Let me read you verses 1 through 3. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. The animal sacrifices were not enough to atone for the sins of the people. Otherwise, they wouldn't have to keep doing them over and over and over and over again. Every year, every year, every year. They were not ultimately satisfying God's justice, just delaying it. So let me summarize this theme of holiness taught in the Old Testament. Number one, God is holy. Number two, we are not. Number three, atonement at one moment can only happen when an innocent sacrifice dies in place of the guilty. And number four, innocent animals were not enough. This is what God's people were being taught in the Old Testament. An innocent sacrifice was needed for atonement. But these innocent animals were not enough. They were not enough to propitiate or to turn away God's wrath. Only enough to delay. Which all sounds very hopeless. 
doesn't it? I mean, if you're one of God's people and you understand his holiness and you understand how your sin separates you from him and you understand that you have this law and you can't keep this law, you can't abide by this law, and even if you do, it's still not enough, why go on? Why did any of these men and women that you read about in the Old Testament that have become heroes to us, how did any of them follow God? They had a law, they couldn't keep it. They deserved God's punishment. The animal sacrifices were only delaying God's wrath. So what kept them going? Is there anything else the Old Testament is about? And the answer is yes. Hope. God's people carried on in obedience to God because of hope. They hopefully clung to the great promises God had made. Specifically, his promise to send someone who would ultimately rescue them. And that's what kept them going. So the hope of the Old Testament... It is not based on the people of the Old Testament or their history. The hope of the Old Testament was based on promises, promises that God made. God makes promises to his people. And without those promises, there would never, ever be a reason for hope. And God makes those promises. Here's another big word. God makes those promises as part of what the Bible calls Covenant. Covenant is how God relates to his people. Husband and wife, marriage. Pastor and parishioners, church membership. God and his people, covenant. The word means a solemn commitment with guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both parties sealed with an oath. And God, thankfully, made covenants with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and their people. And those covenants are part of one big covenant that God is in with all his people, including you, if you're a Christian. And that covenant we could call the covenant of grace. And it includes a promise of grace, undeserved favor toward all of God's people. And it is this promise of grace. It is this promise of rescue It is this promise of a rescuer that brought hope to God's people in the Old Testament. And in fact, look with me. In fact, this promise showed up for the first time right after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. There are many places we could go to in the Old Testament where this promise is made, where God is promising, promising, promising. A day is coming, a day is coming, a day is coming. A rescuer is coming, Messiah is coming. Well, the very first time 
right on the heels of Adam and Eve's sin. In Genesis 3, verse 15, God came and he promised grace. I don't know if you've seen this or if you've missed it. He was actually talking to the serpent who had just deceived Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve were listening. Genesis 3, verse 15. I, God says, will put enmity. In other words, there will be war. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring. He's talking to the serpent. Satan, the devil. Between your offspring, your descendants, Satan, demons, wickedness, the world. There will be war between your offspring and her offspring, singular. She's going to have a very, in her line, she's going to have a descendant. A very special descendant. A child. A very special child. And there will be war between you and that child. And what will that child do? At the end of Genesis 3.15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the first image of the cross of Jesus Christ. This rescuer will come and what will happen? What will happen when this rescuer comes? What will happen on the cross? You will bruise his heel. Remember his feet, his hands would be nailed to a cross. You'll render a blow to this child. But you will bruise his heel. And what will he, this great offspring, to? He won't bruise your heel or your shin or your knee. He will bruise your head. What does that mean? He will take you out. He will take you down. He will crush you beneath his feet. So it's just a pinpoint of light in Genesis chapter 3. There begins hope in the Old Testament and it continues, it continues throughout. Okay, that is the Old Testament. We better move on to the New Testament. Hopefully we have laid a good foundation. In the New Testament, we see God come through on all of his promises. In the New Testament, God comes through on all his promises There are 27 books in the New Testament, if you still have that table of contents. There's 27 books. There are four gospel accounts, Matthew through John. There is one book of church history. That is the book of Acts. There are 13 Pauline epistles, which just means letters written by Paul. That's Romans through Philemon. Then there are eight general epistles, which just means letters written by other guys. That's Hebrews through Jude, and then there is one final prophecy, which is the book of Revelation. Now, when it comes to what the New Testament is actually about, I'll use three headings again. The New Testament is about Jesus, the new covenant people of God, and future hope. The New Testament is about Jesus, the new covenant people of God, and future hope. Jesus, the first thing your New Testament is about is Jesus, which is why the first five books are a historical narrative 
of his life and ministry. The first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell us how God kept his promise of grace. They are like four documentaries, each telling the good news, but from four different perspectives. Matthew was written to Jews, showing mainly that Jesus is the great prophet, promised to Moses and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Mark, we think, may be Peter's recollections written by Mark to Roman Christians. It is the shortest and probably the oldest gospel account. Luke is called the gospel to the Gentiles. Luke stresses that Jesus had come to save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Luke also wrote a sequel called Acts, which gives the history of Jesus building the early church through his spirit after his ascension. And then John, his gospel account is perhaps written to pervade the popular Greek philosophy of the time, which was largely Gnostic. And in those four accounts, we learn the gospel, which means good news. We learn the good news that Jesus came, lived, suffered, died, and rose again in the place of sinners so that sinners could be reconciled to God. We read that Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He did what Adam and Eve could not do. He passed the test that they failed. And then though he did not deserve to die, he was without sin, yet he died. He offered himself up as the ultimate sacrifice for sin so that his people could be forgiven and cleansed from all their sin. He was the sacrifice that all those Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to. He was the final sacrifice. Now, while Jesus is rightly at the heart of the entire New Testament, the Testament is written to, by, and for his people. His covenant people. His new covenant people. So next, the New Testament is about the new covenant people of God. The new covenant people of God. Remember, covenants mark the beginning of relationships in your Bible. God made covenants with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. And God even made a covenant with Jesus and a covenant with all of Jesus' people, all those who are in Christ. Now, there's a couple things that we notice in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. You might be familiar with this. The relationship in the Old Testament between God and His people was messed up. God was in covenant with Israel, which included faithful people and unfaithful people. And that relationship was continually devastated. You've read the stories. That relationship between God and his people, Israel, was continually devastated by unfaithfulness and unbelief and gross defiance by God's image bearers, even those image bearers whom he was in covenant with. So Jesus comes 
to make a new relationship founded on a new covenant in which he will ensure that all his people, all his people, all those he is in covenant with will honor and obey him. Not like the old covenant, God's relationship with Israel, where some obeyed and some didn't. Some were faithful and some weren't. Some believed and some didn't. One of the ways this new covenant is greater is that Jesus ensures that all those in the new covenant honor and obey him. Let me read you a couple Old Testament verses written during the time of the old covenant, looking forward to this new, better covenant of which we are members as the new covenant people of God. One of them, the most famous, is in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31 beginning in verse 31, says this. Remember, this was written centuries before Christ. Behold, the days are coming. I look forward. And the days of these days are here for us. Behold, they were told, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke... Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people, all of them, not just a remnant some faithful, some not all of them in this relationship. They will all be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. He's talking about the new covenant people of God. And then Ezekiel chapter 36 Verses 26 through 27. Again, looking forward to what we have realized. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. New covenant people of God. You have the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ dwelling within you in ways that the old covenant people of God never had. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone, that rebellious heart, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And what's going to be the effect of all that? This new heart and this new spirit. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Isn't that amazing? The new covenant people of God ultimately, not perfectly, but ultimately obey God. The new covenant people of God ultimately are faithful. That doesn't mean we're not, it doesn't mean that at times we're, we're not unfaithful. We are. But we are ultimately and we will remain faithful. But we will remain faithful and we will ultimately obey God because why? Because God is causing us to walk 
in his ways. How's he doing that? New heart. New spirit. That is the new covenant people of God. This new covenant is better. Because everyone in the relationship stays faithful. The, cov- the, the head of this covenant is the best. Jesus Christ. As well, remember under the old covenant, sins were not able to be ultimately or justly forgiven. Hebrews 10.4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But Jesus came as the ultimate and final sacrifice. And so this will bring new meaning, hopefully, to what he said to his disciples the night before he was crucified. This cup is poured out for you and it is the new covenant in my blood. His blood was going to be shed. He was going to be the ultimate sacrifice. That would purchase the new covenant. The new relationship. The fulfillment of all the promises we read of in the Old Testament. This is why Jesus is called the Lamb of God. I mean, forget all those Old Testament lambs. He was the capital L, Lamb of God. The sacrifice. The perfect substitute. God could then forgive the wickedness of his people while ensuring that their wickedness was still punished. The cross allowed God to both forgive and to punish, to be just and the justifier. He was the rescuing, Jesus was, the rescuing, suffering servant predicted in Isaiah chapter 53. Let me read you verses 4 through 6 of Isaiah 53. Again, looking forward to Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes... We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so we are counted as. And we are given the standing of completely righteous in Christ. His righteousness is being imparted to us making us as Christians more and more holy every day. We are the new covenant people of God. So that's what Jesus has done for us, to us, and through us. As we're told by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And then following these books, as I Mentioned before, you have the Pauline and the general epistles. And these letters conclude the New Testament's instruction on what it means to live as the new covenant people of God. There's one more book. There's one more book. One more famous book. It brings us to the third thing the New Testament is about. And that is future hope. It is the book of Revelation. Revelation. 
a book full of, as we're going to see, future hope, and a book full of the kinds of things that nightmares are made of. Revelation is a, is a book of prophecy. It's our last book of pro- looking forward to things that are still yet to come. It's a difficult book to understand. It's a confusing book. Some of it is obscure. People have asked me when, actually years ago, it must have been six years ago, and I, ma- I made this commitment. Some of you were here then. I made this commitment then, and I think it was in six months or seven months, that I was going to preach through the book of Revelation. And I got about five months into studying the book of Revelation and decided I was nowhere near being able to preach the book of Revelation. I don't know if I'll ever be able to preach the book of Revelation. It's a difficult book. It's a glorious book. It's the book of Revelation. I'm going to read you a few verses from chapter 5. In Revelation 5, here's what happens. Uh, The book of Revelation is John is, is sort of taken up. He's taken up and out of this world, and he's shown all of these things behind the spiritual scene, and he's given these visions and images of things that are yet to come, and then he tries to write down his account of all that. That's what's happening. So in Revelation 5, uh, John is shown a, a scroll, and it's got writing on both sides, uh, which was apparently like a Roman will with, with details of the will on one side and then an overview on the other. And this scroll is, is rolled up and then it has seven seals on it. And here's what John, John knows what's inside the scroll. He doesn't know the details, but he knows that what's inside this scroll are God's purposes for all of history. God's plan, if you will, for all of history. But here's here's the dilemma. That scroll is there. It's got these seven seals on it. And there is no one, there's no one living or dead that has the authority to unveil and implement this plan. But but this plan is, is the only future hope. It's the only way anything is ultimately going to work out. And that, that plan isn't, but it can't be opened. It can't be unveiled and it, and it can't be implemented. And there's no one living or dead that is qualified and has the authority to even touch the thing. And so what does John begin to do? Do you remember? He begins to weep. Just like the people in the Old Testament would weep when they were hopeless. Just like you've wept if you've ever felt hopeless. Like at the bottom. It's dark. You don't see any way out. You don't see any light. That's a terrible place to be. We might weep. John felt hopeless in that moment and he wept. So listen, beginning in verse five. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Stop crying. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Who is that? That's Jesus. As though it had... 
I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then Jesus opens the scroll. And the weeping turns to laughing. Jesus opens the scroll. And then do you remember what everyone, including John, does? They do what we just did this morning. They sing. They praise. Verse 9. Here's what they sang. Worthy are you. Remember, no one was worthy. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is future hope. This is future hope. Revelation tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is still not done. Revelation tells us the story of what is still to come. Christ will return. He will judge the living and the dead. He will resurrect to eternal life all his people. And they shall live with him in the new heavens and the new earth. This is future hope. In conclusion. Remember. The Old Testament teaches us that God is holy. And that he has created us in his image to be holy and to reflect his image to all creation. But we are marred images because of sin. But the New Testament teaches us that through Jesus Christ, God is restoring his image in us by transforming us into the likeness of Jesus. This is not the way we would have rescued sinful people if we rescued them. This is not what we would have done. We would have sent someone who would have physically triumphed over our enemies, who would have given us everything that our flesh desired. But the enemy that needed killing was sin. And this was the greatest weapon the devil had. So God sent a sacrifice to die on our behalf. God could have left us to die in our own sin. But he sent his son who lived perfectly, who deserved no wrath, who deserved no punishment, who did not deserve to die. He did not fail the test like Adam. He passed the test. Christ died willingly on the cross to take the place of everyone who turns to and trusts in him. In exchange for our sin and our filth, we are given his holiness. 
In Christ now we are declared holy and righteous before God. That is the good news. That is the greatest story ever told. Every Sunday following every sermon, we respond by taking communion together, which is what we're about to do. We do this in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, remembering what he accomplished for us on the cross. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians eleven, twenty-three through 36. 26, I mean. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we take communion together, we are remembering and proclaiming the Lord's sacrificial death. You are invited to take communion with us. If you're here today and you are a baptized believer, if you have confessed your sin and placed your faith for salvation in the work of Christ and in the work of Christ alone, and if you are part of a church, whether it is this or another local church that faithfully preaches the gospel, we welcome you. We'll have leaders up front who will serve the bread and the juice. We ask after I pray that you would empty into the center aisle and come forward. We'll give you that bread and juice and then return to your seat. And if you would hold on to those emblems so that we can take them together as a family. Let's pray together again. Father in heaven, in response to your word today, we are turning our attention now to the sacrificial death of your son the hero of this greatest story ever told, the true hero, the only hero. May you be glorified now as we remember and proclaim his sacrifice in our place so that we could be brought back to you. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for adopting us into your family. And thank you for the hope we still have to look forward to. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.